Hello, my name is David Lesner, and I'm one of the pastors at Creekwood United Methodist Church. We are located in Fairview, Texas, right east of Allen, just north of the Dallas area. The sermon you're about to hear was recorded at one of our worship services, which we'd love to invite you to check out live at 8.30 a.m. for traditional or 11 a.m. for contemporary on Sunday mornings on our Facebook page or the recorded version on YouTube. We'd love for you to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC or our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more information about what is happening and how you can grow with us in our mission to share God's love. If you feel inspired, there's also a way to give at the top of the website. Thanks for listening to this sermon, and we hope it inspires you in your journey with God. Our scripture reading for today comes from multiple points um, throughout Genesis chapter 1 through 3, starting with Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 27. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Going into Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. On to Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For when God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us say, thanks be to God. So hopefully today's passage was familiar for most of us. Um, If it was familiar because you've read your Bible a lot, great job. But it also might be familiar because this story is depicted in so many pieces of artwork. Um, So what do you all, and this is the part where you have to talk, what do you all think of when I tell you the creation story or the story of Adam and Eve? What are things that come to mind? Snake? Apples? A little bit louder if you're in, what? Fig leaves, yeah. Sin, yeah. Well, we'll just say nakedness, right? What? One more time. Curiosity, oh, that's good, I like that. That's very different. I'm keeping that for later, that's excellent. Great job, Anita. Um, So all of those things come to mind, and. I think that what we've decided the story of Adam and Eve is about is not actually from the Bible. I think we've decided it's from artwork, it's from even how things are referenced um, in other works, like other written works and other um, literary pieces. And there is more to the story, I think, that's in here that we don't 
realize we are taking maybe what we see in artwork and putting it in here. So I want to show you, now here's the thing, when you Google Adam and Eve, there are not a whole lot of pieces that are appropriate to put on a big screen at church. So just, we did what we could with what we had. So if it looks like it's cropped weird, it is. So we're going to look at four pieces of artwork that uh, are typically in the first few pages of what you find when you Google Adam and Eve. So um, let's show this first one. Yeah, so this one, right, we've got, we've got Eve, and she's in this brilliant white piece of clothing, and of course she's got long hair, and she's like super fair skin. And then you've got this man-looking thing, but it's got horns and a tail, and that's supposed to mean that it's Satan whispering in Eve's ear and handing her an apple. And let's look at the second one. Okay, this one cracks me up because this looks like an advertisement to go to like an exhibit at the zoo, right? So this is Adam and Eve, and um, they're just hanging out and holding baby lions, and there's a parakeet in the foreground, and the giraffes are in a waterfall. Like, anybody else have a nursery maybe that was painted like this? What about this third one? Yeah, there are some really interesting ones, too, that really go after the... Um, temptation side of things. Um, and this is really my favorite because they just make Adam look dumb. Not you, Adam. Adam in the Bible, Adam. Right? Like, he just looks like this dopey-eyed guy who's going to do whatever this woman with blonde hair and fair skin is going to tell him to do. And then it's um, this, this large snake wrapped around a tree. Um, and then this fourth one, is one of my favorites of all time, and it is cropped, in case anybody's curious. But this is Adam going, dude, it's not me. Her bad, not mine. Um, but I also love, like, God with baby angels hanging out, because that's what we think of when we think of God, is looks like Zeus and hangs out with babies. Um, and poor Eve's just hanging out. Like, she's laying down, she's getting all the blame, and... Really, Adam's face in this one is um, really just one of my favorite things ever. Is any of that what David just read? Is that what this really says? We're going to go through uh, Genesis chapter 3 today together. And one of the things, if you have your Bible or you have your Bible on your phone, you want to pull it out, I think today's a great day to follow along if you want, because I want us to pay attention to what it actually says. And one of the things that's really important, especially with these couple of stories here at the beginning of the Old Testament, is sometimes, not you guys, but other, other people, other church people, get really caught up in deciding if this is literal or figurative. For our purposes today, you can do what you want. But I want you to think about what the story has for us, if it is literal and if it is figurative. And we're going to walk through kind of um, thinking about it both ways together. There's no right or wrong way to take these stories. Um, again, not you guys, but other church people get into like really big fights about it, and it's just unnecessary. Right? Whether it's literal or figurative, the lesson is still the same. And so if you want to pull out your Bibles, if you want to pull out your phones that have your Bible on it, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to uh, reread and we're going to listen to again. This is verses 1 through 3. Now the serpent 
was more crafty than any other animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it, or you will die. So just a review of what's happening here for a second. Um, it says that in verse 1, the serpent is the most intelligent or crafty. It does not say the serpent is the worst thing ever. The serpent is Satan. You should be afraid of all snakes. It even says that the serpent was the most intelligent of all of the animals who made God. God created the serpent. That is what it's telling us. And honestly, the serpent, the serpent doesn't say, I'm here, I'm the worst, go make a bad choice. The serpent asks a question. Anita, the serpent brings some curiosity to the story. And what's interesting, I think, about um, Eve's response is, you know, the serpent is after clarification here, and Eve responds in verse 2, and she reminds us that the forbidden fruit is forbidden, and she's gone as far as to say that they can't even touch the tree. Now, if you flip back a page or scroll up a little on your phone and you look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 through 17, like David read for us earlier, remember it says, and the Lord God commanded the man because the woman hadn't been made yet, you, shall, you may eat freely of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat it you shall die. So in Genesis 2, God's talking to Adam, or the man, before the woman is even created. And so what the woman repeats to the serpent is hopefully what the man has repeated to the woman, and we can see between chapters 2 and chapters 3, something's been added to the you shall not as well, right? God says you will not eat. The woman says we can't even touch it. Has anybody here ever had instructions that they've repeated over and over and over again, um, still been changed or added or made to be a little bit more dramatic than they actually were in the first place? Parents? Youth director, right? We've, and we've done this, right? I'm the oldest in my family. Um, I am known as the informer uh, for the other two and what they do wrong. People need to know. And I will always make it sound so much worse than it actually is. Let's keep looking at verses 4 through 7. This is back in chapter 3. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, 
And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So if you've ever gone to read, and Adam did a great job spoiling this already, but if you go and you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there are two different creation stories. And this week's Deep Thoughts email is going to totally unpack that, so be on the lookout for that on Wednesday morning. But if you've ever read Genesis 1 and 2, in both creation stories, there's something that's really the same and really important about both of them. Everything is created in order. Everything, for, who's, who's an organized type? Who likes having like labels and boxes and labels on your labels? Right, Genesis 1 and 2 is for us, okay? God makes things and it's very organized and it's very in order and even the way um, that the Hebrew is written is an organized way of writing Hebrew. It's poetic almost. So this is the first time in the Bible where things get out of order. And from there on, nothing's ever in order ever again until Jesus, right? So the snake tells the woman that if she eats the fruit, the fruit that she well knows she shouldn't eat. There's literally one rule in the garden, right? The serpent tells her if you break your one rule, then you will receive what you lack, which in this case is knowledge. I think what Eve heard was the serpent telling her, on your own, the way that you are right now, in this moment, that's not enough. That's not good enough. So she takes a look at the fruit, and it's been... It spends more time in the Bible telling us how she looks at the fruit than how it gets to Adam, right? It tells us that she looks at it, she sees that it's good, she sees that it's good for a fruit, she sees it's delightful, she sees it's going to make her wise. Who in here wouldn't take the deal? What if someone came in here and said... I can make you a cajillionaire. All you need to do is commit this bit of fraud. What if someone came in here and said, I can make your spouse perfect. All you have to do is lie to them a little bit. What if someone came in here and said, I can get your child into Harvard. Just give me a little money. I'll fudge their SAT scores. What if someone came in here and said, I can help you lose those extra 20 pounds. Just don't eat. Who wouldn't take the deal? We've all done it, and maybe not to the extremes that we're talking about, but we love a quick fix. Anything to make us smarter, skinnier, our spouse nicer to us. Have more money. We will do it. So the mentality of of not being enough is something that the first woman who was created experienced. 
and really suffered from. And this mentality is still alive today, and it is so widespread that the influence of this mentality has led to the creation of an industry in our economy that this year is raking in $13.2 billion, and in 2025 is expected to be yielding $14 billion. Does anybody know what industry I'm talking about? What? Apple? No. Ha ha. Thanks, Dusty. No, it's the self-help industry. In 2022, we are still paying attention to the self-help industry. It is raking in billions and billions and billions of dollars a year. Motivational speakers, their net worth, there are certain ones that have a net worth of over like millions of dollars by themselves. And the self-help book, this is really interesting. It's not something um, that is just like our fault in uh, postmodern society, but some people even trace self-help advice back to like there are Egyptian hieroglyphics that they can interpret as telling people how to be better in an easier way. To the tune of $13.2 billion in one year, Human beings are drawn to the idea that we are not enough, and these books contain secret information that is going to make us better. And we love the ones that make us better in an even faster time frame, right? So I did some research, and this was more fun than the Adam and Eve Googling, um, terrible advice that comes from top-selling self-help books. And I'm really sorry if you don't find this terrible. Uh, number one, lavender oil solves everything. Number two, just stop procrastinating. Anybody here ever stop procrastinating because a book told you to stop procrastinating? Starting your own business is always a good idea. Which I love that this idea of like, following your heart, and therefore it will come massive success and massive money. Um, do you know the percentage of startups that fail in the first five years? 70%. That does not mean that starting your own business is always a good idea. Three times out of 10, it's a good idea. Have you seen the newest one that's my favorite, and it's, and it's like COVID-inspired too with the working from home, but any of these self-help books that like promise to reduce your working hours, right? The guy that wrote the book on the four-day work week, this guy lives off of sales of three books and speaking tours. He can have a four-day work week. <laughs> or my favorite piece of self-help advice comes from longtime UCLA football coach Henry Sanders. Does anybody know the quote? Winning isn't everything. It's the only thing. Do you guys know Henry Sanders' Henry Sanders' record? 102 wins, 41 losses. If winning isn't the only thing, there were 41 times that Henry Sanders was, I guess, doing nothing. The self-help book industry keeps on selling $13.2 billion a year off of making us feel like we are not enough. And it's worse because uh, the books aren't working, but we're still buying them. There are very few self-help authors that have only written one book, right? Because the second book is going to unlock even more knowledge to success, and the third book is going to unlock even more because they finally figured it out. 
If self-help books were working, we wouldn't need any more. So back to Genesis 3. Both the man and the woman take the self-help advice that is offered to them. The woman has this conversation with the serpent, and what she hears the serpent tell her is that she is not enough. And even it says when he tells her um, in verse 5, right, this is going to make you like God. You are not enough as you are, and one quick thing is going to make you even better. It's going to make you better. It's going to make you the best. She thinks, and here's the best part. Again, let's go back to the artwork. Everyone thinks that Eve is the worst for giving fruit to her husband, but she thinks it's going to make him wise too. And who wants to walk around being a wise person like God and married to somebody who's not? I know some of you deal with that every day, you feel like. <laughs> However, of course she gave some to her husband, right? And then in verse 7 is where things get really interesting. The eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. This is the first time in the Bible that a human experiences shame. This is the first time humans in the Bible, in their incompleteness, rush to make a decision. Who in here has ever touched a fig leaf? Who in here thinks that fig leaves are super comfortable to cover your most sensitive areas? Fig leaves are covered, bless you, in this fuzz that's delightfully itchy. But they take fig leaves, they sew them together, and they cover themselves with it, and it's absolutely hysterical. But who in here hasn't made themselves to suffer because of shame? There's an entire garden full of leaves that maybe at least one's not as bad as a fig leaf. But in their shame, they rush. They find what they can, and they end up putting on something that continues to make them suffer, continues to hurt them, continues to make them uncomfortable. In trying to make themselves enough, they end up feeling shame. They scramble to alleviate it, and they punish themselves unnecessarily. So now we'll read verses 8 through 13. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, 
The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. The Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate. The woman and the man in their shame, in their extreme uncomfortableness, hide from God. They hide from their creator. They hide them from the one that gave them, literally gave them everything they had in front of them. They hide because even though they've eaten from the fruit, they still don't believe that they are enough. They don't think they're enough for God. Have you ever hidden from God? Have you ever been so ashamed of yourself and your choices and the way you are right now in this moment that you have tried to hide yourself from your family and your friends and the one that created you, the one that knows you? This next section, um, still 8 through 13, sorry. Uh, this next section, I call it the blame game. And I lovingly call it the blame game because this, this is so fascinating, right? So God comes walking around, and uh, God says, well, why were you hiding? What happened? Did you, did you do the one thing I told you not to do? And you know what Adam does? Her! But here's the best part. You know what he says? The woman you gave to me. Woo! You ever blamed God for the choices that you made? And it doesn't stop. Bless it with the woman, right? Because God looks at the woman and says, what did you do? And she says, the serpent. I don't know who the serpent would have blamed if we had kept going. And I call this section the blame game because it actually doesn't stop with what's in the text. But it's continued throughout history. Lots and lots of biblical theologians and historians blame all of humanity and our sin on this moment. What's well, Adam and Eve's fault? And even people have gone as far as to like only blame Eve and be really awful to women because of that. Everyone's looking for a scapegoat. Nobody owns up to their mistakes in this passage. Throughout history, humans, we have not owned up to our mistakes. The blame is always placed on someone else in this chain where we are not, in fact, just simply owning up to our mistakes. When I was in youth ministry, we had this joke, and it was don't lie, right? Like if you set the building on fire, and I ask you, did you set the building on fire? If you say no, I'm no longer mad about the building on fire. I'm mad that you lie. And this part frustrates me so much because I'm not even mad that they took of the fruit, right? Like, who wouldn't take the deal? But man, is it frustrating when people don't own up. I think about myself in my story, and I'm frustrated with myself when I didn't own up. So we're going to skip the section. If you're looking at your Bible, we're going to skip this blessing and curses section. That is a, another sermon for another day, and we're going to skip to verse 20. The man named his wife Eve 
because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed him. And the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground in which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed a cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. There's an entire section of curses that comes before this. But it's not the end of the story. Judgment is never the end of the story. In this entire book, judgment is never the end of the story. The man and the woman are kicked out of the garden, and the garden gets some heavenly guards in front of it. But there's something that's so beautiful if you miss it right before this. Eve gets her name. After this section of judgment, after trying to make herself enough and make her husband enough along with her, Adam gives her the most beautiful name, Eve, the mother of everyone that lives. Now Adam, who just pointed a finger, could have totally given her some terrible names. Messed up so we all sin now. Not enough. Apple giver. Although it never says an apple, right? But instead, he gives her the most beautiful, grace-filled name, mother of everyone who lives. And it doesn't stop with Eve's name. I have a a special helper who's going to help me with this section. So Hattie, are you ready? This is your moment. You can come on up here. So verse 21 tells us that God made clothes for the man and the woman. And he made them out of loincloths for them. So remember the itchy, itchy fig leaves? I have to imagine they fell apart pretty quickly too, but God made loincloths for them so they would be durable and more comfortable. But the Hebrew word for what God does to them, he doesn't just say, boop, clothing. This is what God does. Arm. Other arm. Here, now turn around. God knelt down like we would to a child that's not almost my height and puts clothes on them the way you put clothes on a toddler. Arm, arm, leg, leg, button, zip, tie, whatever. God could have chosen a lot of other ways to put clothing on these two humans that just broke the one rule God gave them. But instead, what God shows these two people is that they are enough. They are enough for God to still love them like a parent. The creator of the universe knelt down and clothed 
them with clothing that is better than what they could have made for themselves. Eve is enough. She is enough for Adam to give her the most loving name just after he receives judgments from God. One of the most important things to think about as we think about Genesis 3 as we are revisiting the classics is I hope that when you see this story, and maybe sometimes you see artwork from this story too, you'll be reminded that what this really says is that you are enough. You are enough to be armed with this story that um, some people are really uncomfortable taking and interpreting. But it's a beautiful metaphor for the choices that we make every single day. You are enough to be loved by God just as you are right now in this very moment. You don't need to be smarter. You don't need to have more money. You don't need to go to a better school. You don't need to have a successful business. You don't need to lose 20 pounds. You are enough for God just as you are right here, right now, in this moment. And there is no self-help, quick piece of fruit bite you need. God created you to be enough just as you are. You are God's child. And this doesn't mean that we don't try to do good things, okay? Don't go walking around making bad choices saying, well, I'm enough. When we do good things, we believe in this word called sanctification, which is Methodist, we believe are these um, acts of, of loving kindness and service that move us towards God. Right? We don't do it so that we're enough. We do it so that we become more like God, so that more of the world knows the love of God. But none of these things need to be done so that God will love you anymore. None of these things need to be done so that you can earn God's love. You already have it. Just like Adam and Eve, before and after they eat, they are enough for God. So you, in your mistakes, in your triumphs, in your grief, in your joy, you are enough. Let's pray. God, we thank you for what you teach us in revisiting old stories. Draw us to your word so that we might take a look at it and see what it actually says for us. God, we pray over every person listening to this sermon right now that they might know that they are enough. That they are enough to be loved by you just as they are. Continue to give us opportunities to grow in sanctification, to grow in love, to move towards you, to be more like you so that others may know that they are enough just as they are. We thank you for this story and for your grace that we see in it. It's in your name we ask these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
We would love if you could leave us a review on whatever platform you are listening today and let us know how we are doing. Be sure to check out our social media pages at Creekwood UMC and our website, creekwoodumc.org, for more ways to get involved at Creekwood United Methodist Church in person, online, or both. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.